Welcome to the SYA podcast, giving you teachings from the young adult ministry of Shepherd Church, where it is our mission to lift up Christ that the world might believe. We meet every Thursday at Shepherd Church in Porter Ranch. For more info, go to wearesya.com. Hello, friends. So uh, I am out in my uh, back room of the house, and there are crows, and my homie neighbors are mowing their lawn as they should. And I've even got a neighbor that has chickens. So if you hear, you know, uh, chickens making chicken noise, uh, well, for me, I'll feel at home in Missouri, but uh, a little weird uh, here. But anyway, these are the wonderful. These are the wonderful things we get to experience by uh, recording things in our homes. Um, well, before I dive in, I just want to, I just want to make, I don't know, make a comment um, about, uh, about w- what happened in our nation's capital uh, yesterday. I know you know this, the, a group of extreme uh, supporters of President Trump, they unlawfully uh, infiltrated the Capitol building and Congress had to shelter into place and these criminals stole and ransacked things from the offices in the Capitol building. At least uh, one man entered, you know, holding a Confederate flag. Um, One woman was shot and killed. Um, She was trying, I think, to climb in, you know, to the to the chamber. And uh, this is all, you know, based on as far, it seems to be an extreme small percentage of uh, Trump supporters who were at his rally yesterday. And, uh, you know, this rally is claiming that the election was stolen. Now that that just seems to be the the basics, even though I know (laughs) uh, in today's political climate, what might seem to one of us to be just the basic information may sound like fake news to other people, but I have no desire uh, to sway your political leaning. I think if you've been uh, friends with me or or hanging out with me at church or even watching online for any period of time, you know that. I have no desire to get you to drink the Kool-Aid of uh, the political cult extremes uh, on either side, the political right or left extremes. And it's weird for me to ever feel like I need to publicly condemn any form of uh, violence like this on either side of political ideology. But for whatever it's worth, uh, this was egregious, to say the least, and I condemn it 100%. That's really easy. And last week, I actually began uh, the All Things New sermon series by saying that the changing of one date, you know, like to a new year, 2020, rolling over to 2021 obviously doesn't make any anything physically better, but the symbolism has been really hopeful, I think, for all of us. And yesterday was a sobering reality of the political divisions in our country. And those divisions are spiritual because everything is spiritual. So I'm praying for accountability from top to bottom. I'm praying for peace in the political landscape, but more than anything, I'm praying for you and for me that we would follow Jesus seriously and that his way would be known, would be made known anew in us, in this new year, uh, whatever comes to be. Jesus said this in Revelation chapter 21, verse five. He said, behold, I am making all things 
new. And all things is really big, and it includes your life, and it includes my life, and this in many ways is what the rest of the New Testament is about. All things new because of Christ's coming, his dying, and his rising. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. It says, this means that anyone who is in Christ has become a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And the resurrection of Jesus is truth to be believed. I believe it's the greatest reality event that's ever happened. But the tragic reality is believers, Christians, who herald most passionately this historical truth, the resurrection of Jesus, yet they show or we show little evidence of its present power in our lives. Peter Rollins, he uh, created this parable. He made this parable up in his book, The Orthodox Heretic. It goes that two days after Christ was crucified, a group of unknown disciples of Jesus, they packed up, they left for a distant shore as they mourned the death of their Messiah. They traveled for months and eventually set up a new community in an isolated area, and they vowed to keep the memory of Christ alive and to live in simplicity, love, and forgiveness, just as he had talked. And they had lived in this solitude for hundred for a hundred years, reflecting on and remaining faithful to the way Jesus had shown him. But eventually, a band of Christian missionaries found them, and they shared that three days after his uh, crucifixion, Jesus had risen from the dead. He had taught his disciples for 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven, sending the Holy Spirit. So this community, when they'd heard of this, they, it exploded with celebration, of course. And deep into the evening during the festival, the celebration, one of the missionaries noticed that the community elder was absent, and he found the elder crouched low in a small hut on the fringe of the village. He was praying and weeping. And the missionary asked, why are you sorrowful? Today is a day of celebration. This elder said, indeed, it is a day of celebration, but also a day of sorrow. For since the founding of this community, we have followed the ways of Christ faithfully, even though it cost us greatly. And the elder rose to his feet slowly and looked at the missionary compassionately. And he said, we have forsaken our very lives because we trusted the way of Christ to live. But now following your news of his resurrection, I'm concerned for my children that they may follow him, not because of his radical life and extreme sacrifice, but selfishly, because his sacrifice will ensure their personal security in the next life. The elder turned and quietly left the hut, making his way to the festival, and the missionary stayed, perplexed, slowly crouching to the floor and beginning to weep. Make no mistake, the resurrection is still the greatest event in history. But tragically, too many of us who proclaim this truth most passionately, we show little evidence of its present power in how we live here and now, feet on the earth. So maybe the greatest news of the good news is that resurrection didn't just happen. It happens. It must happen again in you and in me. And the resurrection was never meant to be an event that you simply believed actually happened. It was meant to be a catalyst that ushered a power into our lives to live in a fundamentally new way. Behold, Jesus said, I am making all things new. Paul writes in Romans 6, when we were joined 
with Christ in baptism, we joined him in his death, for we died and were buried with Christ in baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Romans chapter 8, verse 11, the Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, he lives in you. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, again, this means that anyone who is in Christ has become a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's easy to become cynical in our world, right? Like this idea that some things never change. I mean, political strife can remind us of that. You feel like, you know, you're setting your ways, I'm setting my ways, and really that's never how we see it. <laughs> the way we see it is I'm open, but you're setting your ways. And I was like this about older people in the church being stuck in their religious ways in my early years of ministry. But I was blessed to see something close up in a way that many don't get to. For my first eight years in ministry, 1998 until 2005, I served at a very conservative church in Missouri, about 500 people, many of them older, most of whom had grown up there. And one gentleman there, an elder named Leonard, he was close to 70, was grouchy, didn't smile much, uh, had a high school education. He was a veteran. He had rough hands. And he, he was not unintelligent. He was very, very smart, but he was simple. He was an elder, as I said, in the church. He was respected, and he was old school in every way. In one of my earliest elders' meetings, we discussed or argued about making one of the services contemporary. Like, instead of just having an organ, there would be guitars and drums. And I had heard of stuff like this in Bible college, but because I didn't grow up in the church and the one I had gone to in college was contemporary, like, this didn't make a lot of sense to me. Leonard in this meeting actually said, fellas, I'll be honest. I think there's something demonic in this rock music. I literally laughed out loud because I thought he was making a joke, but he didn't laugh and he looked mad and no one else was laughing. And I was not very mature at this point in my spiritual life. Uh, I was pretty blunt and I ended up going on a rant. Like how could an organ one type of instrument be more spiritual than another inanimate object, right? And other instruments. And the cur current way of worship was, you know, there was an organ, there was a song leader, and it was very polite, and you stood and you read from a hymnal. And, um, you know, in my observation, there was very few smiles. And I would preach in the main service about once a month, and there'd be a good four to five older couples who would walk out, right? Um, which honestly, and my pride was a badge of honor for me. Part of the problem, I didn't see it as a problem at the time, but I had really long hair. I had earrings. I was loud. Uh, I was arrogant. And so that was part of the, uh, part of the reason for the protest of people walking out. My audacity and zeal did, I think, help spark some change in that church. And God honored some of my prayers. And we built a worship and missions culture among the students in the youth ministry, um, I was learning how to disciple church kids. And in, in the first two years, we began trips to Mexico and Haiti, and we served in uh, homeless ministries nearby. We did full-on prayer meetings with high school kids, right? I, I became a, an assistant football coach. I taught in the public schools. Um, we had unchurched kids coming, and Leonard was watching all of this. He saw grandchildren of his friends, punk kids, who were changing because of Christ. 
parents and other adults began asking about going on mission trips and doing service projects for the poor. And we had worship nights for our church. And we started having like as many at these worship nights as we did on Sunday mornings. And so we began doing contemporary worship on Sunday mornings. And this all began something in Leonard. It was a slow burn like all change is, but my last few years there, Leonard could be found in the front row on Sunday morning worship, hands stretched, which he used to see as like an abomination. And his tears would just pour down his face as he would sing. And he stopped going to his adult Sunday school that he'd attended for 40 years because he said they just gossip. And he said, I tried calling them out, but they just ignored me. I don't know if they'll ever change, but I'm not going anymore. Oh, and when I preached in those last few years, Leonard would stand in the back at the side door so that when some of his old friends who would do their little protest, you know, walk out, he'd meet them at the door and he'd say, how are you going to just walk out of church? Leonard passed away a few years ago, and I was thinking, who knows how many dollars he gave to kids and adults to go on mission trips, or how many tears he shed in the front row of that old sanctuary that he'd grown up in. But because of Leonard, I will never bow to a cynicism that says people can't change. And a big part of that was what I got to watch in him. That resurrection happened, but it still happens. And a good story, testimony, can often give the appearance of courage in a moment versus what what Jesus simply calls a death. John chapter 12, Jesus says in verse 24, I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone, but its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new life. An inescapable truth that lies just inside the resurrected tomb is that new life only emerges from pain, sacrifice, and death. And that means time is inevitable, right? The, the cognitive belief, like what you believe in alone, doesn't cost anything. Like there's little risk there, especially if your family or your friendship tribe also believes these things that you claim to believe, like, you know, posting it on Inst- you know Instagram, saying it in front of people. If most of the people agree with this, you're really kind of just posturing to get some praise and slaps on the back. It doesn't really cost you anything, right? This is why Jesus's most repeated statement in all four gospels is this. Here's an example from Matthew 16. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. And the word here for lose, whoever loses their life, it literally means to destroy, kill, or ruin. But whoever ruins their life for me will find it. And this is the bulk of the New Testament teachings. I can boil it down to a fundamental question that I'd like to ask you. In light of Jesus's radical teachings, his courageous and revealing death, his rising from the dead and his evolving revolution that has marked humanity ever since, will you choose to believe that his way is supreme? Modern religion, I think, desires a God who will bestow on us our coveted emotional ecstasy, right? Like, Uh, joy, peace, patience, wisdom in a moment, right? We want it like a fast-acting extended release pill or a a whiskey shot or high-speed 5G or whatever. But Jesus's way of loving enemies, his way of nonviolent protest, turning the other cheek, to to give is better than to receive, uh, to be slow to speak, you know, uh, versus reacting, 
taken a place at the back to advocate for the weaker and the marginalized. Like in Jesus's way of living, a death always comes before the advent of new life. And how else would it come? How else would new life come? It comes only with one bold, risky step toward his way at a time. So in 1993, I came to Christ. A year later, I began working on my language, right? Uh, cursing, specifically saying God's name in vain, both saying God's name, saying Jesus in a, in a, in a way of, uh, of, of cussing. And it took a while. And it seemed difficult, like I'd never be able to stop. And I got really frustrated. And it was also around this time I began to really work on inappropriate joking, like coarse joking, like... Uh, <laughs> It's probably not funny, but it is. I had a bumper sticker on my car that was on there before I became a Christian, and it said, um, "Don't be a, don't be a weenie, don't be a, uh, don't be a wuss." But there was another word there, and it was just big bumper sticker on my bumper, and I'd kind of forgotten, you know, like after you have something for so long, you kind of you don't see it anymore. And I became a Christian. I was at church every Sunday. And I was outside of church one day. My car was right there on the, on the side of the road. And uh, I was talking to one of the elders, one of the leaders in the church. And uh, he kept looking at my car. And I didn't know why. And he said goodbye. And I, I went to walk to my car. And I saw that bumper sticker. Oh, I was so embarrassed. And I went and scraped it off when I got home. And I was working on my, my language. And it took a while. I remember thinking like, I'm never going to be able to stop slipping and, and saying these. In 1996, I was, uh, I was 20 years old. I, I worked at a, uh, this was a couple years after working on my language, and I worked at a at a, uh, a country club where I waited tables. And I've told the story before, and I'll make it a little shorter here, but um, there was a very attractive woman that was a good decade or more older than me. And long story short, we were the last two there, and she um, invited me to go to the back private changing rooms. We were the only ones on campus and no one would have known, but I didn't. Um, I, I, I walked out of, the, uh, of that restaurant and I drove home and I cried. It was a little over dramatic, but I cried because two years before that, three years before that, that would have been something I would not have walked away from, nor would I have wanted to. Um, but I'd become something and someone new. And I know there are many moments that I've forgotten where I retreated, right? Two steps back after one step forward. And I've told a lot of those stories, but I know there are more, but I tell you about the language, the joking, you know, the bumper sticker and the restaurant, because it's the progression that I want you to see. The risen new life that Jesus offers happens in the cumulative steps, in the grind of disciplining your own soul. A watered seed eventually grows. And the resounding testimony from millions throughout history says it works. That which dies and what you lose never ri uh, rivals uh, that which is raised anew. What you lose doesn't compare to what you'll gain. When the Apostle Paul said good goodbye to the, for the last time, to some of his most beloved leadership friends in Acts 20, verse 32. He says, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone else's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know these, these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. 
In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. In other words, Paul is saying, I've got no regrets. Risen life in Christ works. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says, Paul says, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed. Uh, we doubt, but we aren't driven to despair. We are hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Through suffering, he says, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus, the resurrected life of Jesus, may also be seen. And each time Paul was looking back after much hardship, a life of service and sacrifice filtered through the way of Jesus. But again and again, he expresses the sentiment that millions have echoed through the ages and that I, that I pray my life echoes as well, that it was hard, there were times of difficulties and pain, but it was good. It was so much be better, I wouldn't have missed it for the world. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 4, Paul lays out all the ways that he'd been resolutely committed to his religion, his politics, his beliefs. And then he writes, I once counted these things as an advantage, but now in light of what Christ has done, I see their damage. Yes, I count all things as worthless in comparison with the supremacy of knowing Jesus as my Lord. Anything I may have gained without Christ, I, I count aside and I count it as excrement, right? The key word there is count. I count it. I once counted my beliefs as an advantage. Now I count it all as worthless compared to Jesus. This, this Greek word uh, count, it's an accounting term. It's like taking inventory. Paul took inventory of his way before knowing Christ, his worldview, his politics, his beliefs, his assumptions, his justifications, his way of wisdom. He looks at all of it. And in retrospect of experiencing and knowing Jesus, he says, yeah, it's all excrement compared to knowing Jesus. Paul went all in, risking much, and he suffered for it. And day by day, he'd, he'd uh, metaphorically wipe the dirt off the graveyard of his soul, living in new, resurrected life. And this is the work of living in the resurrection of Jesus. As you look at the way that Jesus offers peace versus revenge, purity over self-indulgence, meeting real needs with grateful generosity versus like accumulation, nuance and curiosity versus overconfident conclusions, humility versus self-righteousness. Ask how you've taken risks to step, to step more fully into the risen way of Jesus. Like what do you still clearly count as better than the way of Jesus? But don't, but don't downplay the change that has already taken place in your life. Spiritual growth is is like plant development. Roots take time to grow, and gradual growth is normal and healthy. But beware of those who boast of immediate spiritual growth. We need reminded of how far we've come because we often dig it all back up and we dump the old graveyard dirt on our resurrected lives, and we pay far too much attention to the steps back than we do the steps forward. Like there's no pill, there's no magic, we're not perfected in a moment. It is an evolving resurrection. And sometimes we need to be reminded how much more alive we actually are now than before. Resurrection doesn't just didn't just happen. It happens. So survey your spiritual landscape. Do you simply have a set of beliefs? Or have you risked putting your heart on the line to live in Jesus' way? And listen, no shame. 
right? For the steps backwards, because it, besides, shame doesn't work anyway. You give grace to others, that's what we're called to do. You've gotta give grace to yourself. The crucified Jesus meets us where we are and he loves us as we are. And the risen Savior proclaims that it's all true and that God's, loves win God's love wins. And the resurrection is an event that changed everything. I believe this with everything I am, and I hope you do too, but far more vital is, has it happened to you? Resurrection, has it happened in your life? Is the life, teachings, death, resurrection of Jesus changing your life daily here and now? Jesus Christ rose from the dead, proclaiming life eternal for those who trust him. Amen. But his resurrection, again, in us, this is life eternal right here and right now. Thanks for listening to the SYA podcast. Be sure to connect with us on Instagram at wearesya.com.